Howdy, my name is Ben Crockett with 451 Now, and today's guest is George Will. He is a American columnist, political philosopher. He run he won the Pulitzer Prize. He writes regularly um, for the Washington Post and produces commentary that can be read in many different places, including NBC News and MSNBC. Today, we're going to be talking to him about his book. American happiness and discontents. Mr. Will, it is a pleasure to have you on. It's great to be with you. So I, I had to start off and ask, what's on your three by five card? <laughs> you mean coming columns? Well, I can actually show you. Uh, it's, it's a three by five card cut in half, actually. And right now there are three of them. I'm going to write uh, yet another denunciation of the New York Times 1619 project, its attempt to uh, distort American history. There's a Supreme Court case coming on uh, uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act. There's a book I'm going to write about called uh, uh, Rescuing Socrates. It's about a Dominican uh, immigrant uh, who about 30 years ago came to this country and wound up teaching the Common Core at uh, Columbia University. Oh, let's see, I've got uh, uh, something on that. I'm gonna write on the confirmation of Jay Powell to be another term at the head of the Fed. It's a very good study from the Cato Institute. All their studies are excellent in my judgment on the, the importance of wealthy people uh, to the flourishing of our society. That, that gives you some, some sense of what's coming. That, that does. So I, I guess as a follow-up, what's your you know, process for writing an essay? Some people, they sit down and the words just come to them. And, and others, they seem to have to plan meticulously with painstaking detail what they're going to write. How do you sit down and write one of your famous columns? Well, very often I write not to say what I think, but to find out what I think. Uh, I, I, I spent a lot of time, people say, what do you do? I suppose I'd say I'm a writer, but I'm really a reader. I spend more time reading than writing, uh, clipping the good uh, essays that I like and good articles that I like. I have files all over my office for coming columns. I like to think that my columns are fact heavy. I know we appear on the opinion pages, but uh, opinion's a fairly small part of uh, my columns, I think. One of the nicest compliments I ever received was from someone who was a fact checker at the Washington Post Writers Group, which is the outfit that syndicates my column to my hundreds of newspapers. And this fact checker said that, that what surprised her most when she got to it was the number of facts in my columns, which I, I, I think nothing is more optional than reading a syndicated column. So it had better A, be fun, which means well-written and have a little, in almost every column I write, there's a point where I hope the reader will at least smile, if not laugh out loud. But learning things is a pleasure. And I think people, if, if they think they're gonna get the pleasure of putting the paper down after 750 words saying, ha, I didn't know that before. I think that's the, the secret to longevity in this business. You touched on uh, the importance of, of deep reading, something that you uh, wrote about in your column uh, in this collection uh, entitled In Praise of Binge Reading. 
And um, I, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more between the connection between deep writing, deep thought, and deep reading. Yes, indeed. Uh, it, it seems to me for all our besotted uh, obsession with the new media, Facebook, uh, the internet, blogging, all the rest, books remain what they have been since Mr. Gutenberg made books democratized with movable type. Uh, they remain the primary carriers of ideas. And if you believe, as I emphatically do, that not just that ideas have consequences, to repeat the title of one of the canonical works of the post-war conservative movement, but that only ideas have large and lasting consequences. If you believe that, then books are central to the business of public commentary. And by deep reading, uh, I mean that the engagement with a book, the engagement with writing rather than, than listening or watching videos, uh, the discipline of following uh, sentences into paragraphs and paragraphs into chapters, uh, the immersion in a long uh, fact-buttressed argument is important for, well, for actually the, the sinews of mind necessary for a democracy. Some people, uh, this is a minority taste and a minority skill, and if that sounds elitist, I plead guilty cheerfully, uh, but it, it is uh, a skill that a, an elite portion of a society needs to have uh, to an, encounter complex arguments and complex problems. And it, you can only do that with the skill of what is called deep reading. You uh, reminded me of a famous quote from uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington um, about the sort of elite a uh, taste of of reading, and it, it seems like reading on a broader scale has become something of a lost cause. And Mr. Smith goes to Washington. There's this this famous scene um, in where, where where they say something like, "Oh, it's a lost cause," and the main character replies, "Oh, but lost causes are the only causes worth fighting for." Lord knows I've backed enough lost causes in my day. Uh, <laughs> I, I spent two years at Oxford, which is famously known as the home of lost causes. Uh, but uh, not all causes are lost and not all lost causes are lost forever. Uh, there, are, there are ways to resuscitate good ideas and good causes. I, I, I had one more thought on the article in praise of, of binge reading. In it, you say, yet even among young people in higher education, Many professors will not assign entire books or substantial portions of challenging ones. Why? Well, uh, because increasingly universities, and by the way, most universities have, in effect, open admissions. That is, if you have the tuition and a pulse, you can get in. Uh, uh, most universities now are in a competition for students, and they are uh, look upon students as customers for their services. Uh, there are very few highly selective uh, in institutions of higher education. You know, you can. Uh, someone printed up a T-shirt not long ago that said, "College those magic seven years between high school and your first warehouse job." Uh, abundant research demonstrates that students today are studying less, reading less, writing less than they used to do. 
Uh, the, many of them go to the school that has the, has the best Mongolian barbecue in the student union. Uh, so uh, put me down as someone who's not enthralled with the current state of higher education. The very phrase suggests the question, higher than what exactly? I will not name the institution of which I'm about to refer, but it was only a short time ago that I was looking for various universities to apply to. And in the mail, uh, my mom will remember this moment very clearly. In the mail, I received a package, um, a infographic from one of these institutes of higher education in the, from the state of Louisiana. I won't say which Louisiana university it was, but it advertised the proximity of this university to bars, and it also said that it had the most festival days of any university in the country. Now, I won't say which university it, it was, but it does seem like there is a trend to um, de-educate, <laughs> uh, de-strenuize, if that's even a word, um, higher education, and turn it into a quote-unquote experience which can be bought exactly and and uh, education should be fun but the fun should come from the thrill of uh, arduous engagement for four years with uh, the best that has been written and thought to use the language of, uh, of matthew arnold i often find myself agreeing with your columns mr will but you wrote one that's included in this this uh, collection uh, happiness and discontent um, called the plague of denim and in it you say it is a straight line from the fall of the bastille to the rise of denim mr will blue jeans really i'll tell you yes really and i'll tell you why i got tired of sitting in airport concourses i travel a lot and watching people go by a father a 40 year old father and his 12 year old son walking down the concourse they're dressed exactly alike Running shoes, blue jeans, a collarless T-shirt, baseball cap. And if mother's with them, she too is wearing blue jeans. And it kept occurring to me that I could dimly remember a time when different stages of life were demarcated by different ways of dressing. Uh, one put away childish things, to use the language of um, uh, 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 scripture, and dressed like an adult. Uh, the tendency to blur what should be uh, momentous changes in, in our life status uh, is, is why behind this somewhat playful denunciation of denim, which is certainly <laughs> the most talked about column in that book, uh, uh, it, there's a serious point there that uh, I, I, I think people ought to embrace growing up and resist the the childishness that seems to creep into the adult sphere of life. You just uh, quoted a bit of the Apostle Paul writing to the uh, uh, Corinthians, which brings me to my my next question, my next inquiry. You're uh, a conservative um, uh, uh, light atheist, I guess, might be a, a good description. Um, but do you still find utility in the scriptures? My, oh, look, absolutely. Uh, uh, Christianity is, is woven into the fiber of the Western world. Uh, 
the King James Version is one of the tri triumphant products of the Western literary canon. I have described myself as uh, an amiable, low-voltage atheist. I'm not trying to talk anyone out of their faith, least of all my wife, who's a ferocious Presbyterian. Uh, it, it's just that I grew up in a secular household uh, and have, uh, although I'm interested in religion, I was a religion major as an undergraduate, uh, it just never uh, uh, caught my fancy other than as something important to a great many people and important in the shaping of history. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Uh, I, I guess it's it's just, it's been a non-issue in your life would probably be a good description. Well, that's right. My, my father's father was a Lutheran minister in uh, Pennsylvania, Northern uh, Maryland, Eastern Ohio. And my father as a young man, a young boy really, would sit outside Pastor Will's study and listen to the Pastor Will reasoning with uh, some of his more reflective parishioners in trying to reconcile grace and free will. And this turned my father not into a, a Lutheran, but into a philosopher, a professor of philosophy. And I'm a, I'm a faculty brat. He was at the University of Illinois for 37 years. Uh, made him philosophical. Uh, and uh, again, religion, I just never encountered it in uh, growing up in Champaign, Illinois. I see what you mean. At the beginning, you said, uh, at the beginning of this podcast, at the beginning of this interview, you said that uh, one of the reasons why you write um, is, is because it helps you to refine uh, what you think. And in your uh, response to that previous question, I saw, uh, you know, snippets of so many little articles. There's a, a very well uh, developed tone in your writing. And what's interesting to me is it seems like you, you almost speak in the same way that you write. Well, it's the same language, for goodness sakes. Why wouldn't I? Um, I, I like to think that, that uh, I can speak in paragraphs. I know that in the in the Twitterverse, which we are now enmeshed, I'm told I've never tweeted in my life. I'm told I have a Facebook page, but I've never seen it. Someone on my staff sends out uh, however many characters there are nowadays in Twitter from my columns twice a week, but that's it. Um, it, it, it seems to me that Twitter is a, a retrograde development in, in our midst because it encourages what needs no more encouragement than modern life itself encourages, which is a short attention span, which takes us back in hailing distance of the question of deep reading. Perhaps another one of those lost causes. Yeah, well, not lost. You see, again, most Americans don't read newspapers, and most of those who do read newspapers don't read uh, op-ed columns. Now, that depresses some people in my business. It doesn't depress me, because what it means is we have a small but upscale, intellectually upscale, self-selected audience that brings to reading columns, which they do voluntarily out of curiosity and interest. They have mental pantries stocked full of information and opinions and historical references and all the rest, which means you can talk to them about serious matters in 750 words because you can assume on their part a, a certain foundation of knowledge. Uh, it doesn't bother me a bit to, to, to recognize the obvious 
which is that uh, those of us who write as public intellectuals are uh, having a, a small conversation with a self-selected minority group. One of the articles I wanted to talk to you about was entitled Iceland's Final Solution to the Down Syndrome Problem. Um, Mr. Will, as, as, as you know, uh, recently the Supreme Court has heard all arguments on a uh, case involving a Mississippi abortion law. Um, what's your general sense of the wind? Uh, do you think that in the future in America we will have you know, a Icelandic situation? Or do you think in the future in America we will have um, an alternative one? I think the future in America, uh, we're apt to have 50 different legal regimes regulating abortion. Uh, abortion was until 1973 in Roe v. Wade, well within the regulatory police powers of the states. It was taken away from them by improvidently and with execrable uh, constitutional reasoning by Roe v. Wade, something, by the way, that people like John Hart Eli, a great professor of constitutional law, said, even though Eli and others support permissive abortion policies. I can see no reason for the court to have accepted the Mississippi case unless it, A, at a minimum, wanted to get away from the viability uh, threshold as uh, the standard at which restrictions on abortion become unconstitutional. And perhaps even, there are now six perhaps votes, perhaps five certainly to overturn Roe v. Wade and, and restore it to uh, a, a political question to be debated and settled in 50 jurisdictions plus the District of Columbia. Uh, we would have very different outcomes, and uh, I'm not sure that will that will happen. But uh, it, it, it seems to me that the court, the court's reasoning in Roe and then in Casey, the, the Pennsylvania case in '92, 19 years after Roe, uh, the reasoning is so slapdash and unconvincing, and uh, that I think the a majority on the court may want to throw up its hands and say, let's get out of this business because uh, you really cannot rehabilitate Roe as, as constitutional law. It, it seems almost like you're in favor of legislative deference in this, uh, in this circumstance. Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, and I want to make clear this. The problem with abortion is the fundamental difference is over how many people are involved? Is it one person or two? Uh, that is, at what point do you say there's another person in the form of the unborn child? Uh, and this is a vexing question that has puzzled people for centuries, long before embryology came along, long before sonograms came along, uh, to give us the picture of uh, a, a, a preborn baby in the early months of gestation, sucking its thumb, batting its eyes with a beating heart and moving its fingers and all the rest. Uh, I, I, I'm not, uh, this is a serious argument about which intelligent people of goodwill can and do disagree. But, uh, so I, I'm really not advocating judicial deference 
I've been doing this and writing columns now for about 50 years, and I'm frequently asked, on what important matter have you changed your mind? And this is it. Uh, when I came to Washington in 1970, uh, three years before becoming a columnist, I had the typical conservative rhetoric of judicial restraint. Uh, looking back on the somewhat freewheeling jurisprudence of the Warren Court. Uh, I have subsequently decided I was mistaken. I'm 180 degrees different. I'm now for what is called, uh, from people like Clark Neely, now at the Cato Institute, judicial engagement. And my argument goes, can I give you a little three-minute tour of the horizon here? I grew up in central Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. And according to local lore, it was in the Champaign County Courthouse that Abraham Lincoln, then a traveling, uh, very prosperous railroad lawyer, was when he heard that Stephen A. Douglas, the Illinois senator, had succeeded in passing through Congress the Kansas-Nebraska Act, 1854. The purpose of this was to solve the, the question that was rending the Union as to what to do about the question of slavery in the territories where federal jurisdiction ran. In Kansas, Nebraska, and others, could people take slaves into the territory? Could there be slavery, uh, a whole regime of law to protect property and other human beings? Stephen A. Douglas's answer was popular sovereignty in the territories. Vote it up, vote slavery up, vote slavery down, matter of moral indifference, because the morally important point was majority should rule. Lincoln's ascent to greatness began with his canny, implacable recoil against this. He said, America is not about a process majority rule. America is about liberty. And uh, I've really been working on this problem since I wrote my doctoral dissertation at Princeton, called the title of which was Beyond the Reach of Majorities. It's a phrase from the flag salute case, the second of the two flag salute cases. In 1939, uh, the Supreme Court ruled eight to one that the state of Pennsylvania could indeed, by majority rule, compel minorities, in this case Jehovah's Witnesses' children, to do something uh, contrary to their conscience and salute the flag. Just four years later, in a case from West Virginia, also involving Jehovah's Witnesses' children, uh, the Supreme Court reversed itself. And it said the very purpose of a Bill of Rights is to place certain things beyond the reach of majorities, above the vicissitudes of politics. Uh, a constitution is an inherently anti-majoritarian device. Uh, First Amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or establishing a Even if a majority wants it, we don't care. We took that off the table. And it seems to me... Uh, much of the, what makes a civilized society is the number of things not submitted to majority rule. Obviously, majority rule is important, but it is not all important. So, I'm, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a great majoritarian, said, if the American people want to go to hell, I will help them. It's my job. Well, I think that's not your job. That's not the job of, of a of someone construing the Constitution. Construing the Constitution is to preserve the Constitution, which has, this is inherent in the idea of a written Constitution, 
restrictions on the discretion of majorities. At what point in our history do you think we shifted um, from this pro-liberty, anti-majoritarianism into this uh, democracy above all else? Was it, you know, with um, the passage of the, the 17th Amendment, for example, when did it all sort of uh, change? Well, I can actually give you a sort of a precise date of 1937. That's when the the court shifted to become deferential to the New Deal's expansion of the government in ways that it had hitherto resisted to the point that it provoked FDR's plan to pack the Supreme Court. But it really, I would say that the, the, the real shift began with Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was the first president to criticize the American founding, which he did not do peripherally, but root and branch. He said the separation of powers uh, was all very well when we were a country of 4 million people, 80% of whom lived within 20 miles of Atlantic tidewater. But now we're a great nation united by steel rails and copper wires across the continent. And we need a, 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 a nimble, that was one of his favorite descriptions of the sort of government he wanted, a nimble government led by a, a forceful president who would not be inhibited by and impeded by and tied down by the separation of powers. He wanted a more efficient government. He was, after all, one of the first presidents of the American Political Science Association. Science was in the air at that time, at the turn of the century. Marconi, Edison, the Wright brothers, Henry Ford. And people like uh, the progressives were were hot to apply science, the science of public administration, uh, to public policy, uh, particularly through a strong, uh, unfettered executive. Now, if you believe, as I do, and there's much in my book about uh, trying to recage the executive lion, to use a phrase from some good writing on the problem of unhinged presidents, uh, then you then you understand that this really began with uh, with Woodrow Wilson. I want to sort of end out our our conversation today with a number of different questions about books and about reading. Whenever anyone reads one of your columns, it is immediately apparent how wide read you are. And I was wondering if you could give us a few of the George Will book recommendations. <laughs> well, first, let me say, I get up at 520 every morning. And at 521, I'm listening to an audible book. Uh, by the time I get to work, having showered, shaved, exercised, uh, I go for fast walks in the morning every day. Time I get to work, I've been listening to a book for two and a half hours. Uh, I go through 70 or 80 books a year and otherwise wasted time. Uh, so, uh, I mean, great books. Let me give you just uh, eclectically. You want to know what uh, good writing is? Want to know what uh, the 1619 Project doesn't understand? Read Bernard Balin's The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. And then read... The Creation of the American Republic by Gordon Wood and also by Gordon Wood, The Radicalism of the American Revolution. You want to know how history 
ought to be written and is mostly written nowadays, not by academic historians, they're mostly hopeless, but by uh, talented amateurs, if you will. Get Daniel Okrent's book called The Last Call. It's a history of prohibition. It's a great study in the law of unintended consequences, which is important to conservatives. That law being that the unintended consequences of government interventions in society are apt to be larger than and contrary to the intended consequences. I could I could go on and give you all kinds of books, but w- this is a golden age mm. of r- great writing about American history. I tell you what, can we transition and get some fiction recommendations? Because I think that sometimes fiction can uh, transmit those those more spiritual truths, those sort of you know archetypal uh, stories. And, and can give us more of a moral truth. So could you give us maybe some uh, fiction book recommendations as well? I'm now listening to the collected short stories of Eudora Welty, one of the great national treasures. She uh, lived her life in Mississippi, uh, part of that great outpouring of Southern talent, Faulkner uh, and, and others, uh, Robert Penn Warren, uh, Peter Taylor, uh, another author of great short stories. I, I, I think people need stories. I, I think they they do refresh the brain cells. Uh, one can become saturated with uh, history and with political thought and current arguments, and to go into a, another world that is created by the real masters of the craft who know how to to illuminate the human condition. Mr. Will, thank you so much for your time here today. It's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed it. I I applaud more than you can know uh, someone like you standing up for the primacy of the printed word and particularly the primacy of books.